through sometimes when life, when life gets difficult. And so um, no matter where you are, no matter what you're facing, no matter how deep you feel like you are in a hole, here's what we know is that you may not like religion. You may not like all the Christians that you know that claim to be a Christian, but we believe when you meet Jesus, you can't help but like him and you can't help but fall in love with him and his, the hope that he gives us that can really only be experienced just begins to change us and transform us. And so that's what we're all about. We want to share that, that transforming hope. We want to be hope dealers. Uh, and, uh, and so we're just excited about what God's doing. Um, I am really, really just excited to be wrapping up this series today, The Happiness Myth. We're going to jump into that in just a second. Um, but I just want to say again that I, I'm, I'm just glad you're here. You know, your family, you're my family. I see you more than I see my family. And uh, matter of fact, I, like I was watching that video just thinking like, you know, Clark is actually my family because Clark is Andrea's uh, cousin, which makes him my cousin or second cousin or cousin-in-law. I don't know how it works. But then Clark married Allie, who's related to like half the church. So I'm related to half y'all. Y'all, y'all are like my family. Somehow, I don't know how it works, but we're related. And uh, so just this Christmas, remember, I'm family. Just drop a little something. Just kidding. Hey, why don't you turn to the person you're sitting beside and just tell them you look like you lost some weight. Go ahead, just tell them you're looking good. You look like you lost some weight. Now turn to the other person that you didn't want to tell that to and tell them too. Tell them that you look like you lost some weight. Even though you were my second choice, you're looking skinny. That's good. I wanted you to smile because there's not going to be that much more to smile about today as we get into this message. Um... How many boxing fans do we have in the room? Any boxing fans? I want to tell you a story, a boxing story. Uh, February 10th, 1990, one of the greatest boxers to ever live entered the Tokyo Dome in Tokyo, Japan. His name was Mike Tyson. And if you are over the age of 30, you probably know about Mike Tyson uh, as the, maybe the boxer or the Nintendo game Mike Tyson punch. You know, if you're under the age of 30, you may just know Mike Tyson as like a guy with a tattoo on his face who was in some movies. Um, but he was the greatest, one of the greatest fighters to, to ever live. And he entered that night in uh, February 10th, 1990 as the undisputed, undefeated heavyweight champion. Uh, and he had a record of 37 and 0. He was 37 and 0. He was like, he was like Ronda Rousey and Floyd Mayweather morphed into one. Like he would knock you out in like 10 seconds, but you also couldn't like hit him. And, uh, and he was pretty incredible. So Tyson's opponent that night was a 42-to-1 betting underdog named James Buster Douglas. And Buster Douglas had this mediocre record of 29-4-1, and which in boxing is not that great. Buster Douglas, in his, last, um, in his last title chance that he had, had knocked out in 10 rounds. And so nobody in the boxing world really was like, thinking much about this fight. Actually, Tyson's next fight was going to be against up-and-coming, at the time, Evander Holyfield. And so Tyson Holyfield was this huge fight that was going to be, and the boxing world just kind of viewed the Tyson-Douglas fight as a kind of a warm-up for Tyson to, to stay loose, I guess. I don't know. So something strange happened when the, fought, when the fight started, though, because the announcers and everybody watching noticed that Douglas wasn't scared. He wasn't afraid of Tyson. And he was able to land a few punches, and he was able to avoid the big punches, because that's how Tyson beat you, is he would just hit you with a big punch early, and he was able to avoid that. And so in the middle rounds, through enough kind of jabs, Tyson's right eye began to swell up, which is a big deal in boxing, but it's not a huge deal, because 
every fighting corner crew has a little device called an inswell. And an inswell is just this metal thing that they, they cool down and they, they stick it on the swelling and so it'll go down. Every fighting crew has that. But because Tyson's crew wasn't expecting much of a fight from Douglas, they didn't bring the inswell with them. And so they tried to improvise and they, they were able to get the swelling down a little bit, but Tyson's eye kept, kept growing. And so Tyson comes out in the eighth round and he's able to land one of his big punches and he knocks Buster Douglas down to the mat. There was 10 seconds left in the round. And so he knocks Buster Douglas down. Buster kind of figures out a way to get to his feet after a nine count and the bell rings and the match is going to continue on. He barely escaped the knockout. So the ninth round happens. And when the ninth round started, both fighters came out swinging. And, and Douglas was able to connect four consecutive punches and then an uppercut, and he knocked Tyson to the mat. And after a 10-second count, it was over. Underdog Buster Douglas had knocked out the champion Mike Tyson in the greatest upset in boxing history Buster Douglas became the undisputed heavyweight champion. The truth is, Buster Douglas had no business competing with Mike Tyson that night. He wasn't as strong. He wasn't as talented. He didn't have the pedigree. He was not the fighter that Tyson was. Here was the problem. Tyson knew that too. And Tyson didn't realize he was in trouble until he was laying on his back on the mat. And the reason that I'm telling you this, and the reason we're talking about this, is because I want you to know that nothing sets you up for failure quicker than underestimating your opponent. Nothing sets you up to fail like underestimating your opponent. And so today, as we conclude this Happiness Myth series, I, I, I want us to talk about the danger of underestimating. We've spent the last six weeks reading through the book of Judges and, and learning that the happiness myth isn't true. And if you haven't been here uh, let me just, just fill you in a little bit. The happiness myth is just this belief that what I want or my way is the best way to be happy. That's the happiness myth, that my way is the best way to be happy. That ever since Eve ate that apple from generation to generation, we've passed down this myth that if I will get what I want, I will end up happy. But we know that's not true because if it were true, we'd be happy. And we're not. 43% of Americans take some form of mood-altering medication regularly. And even beyond that, like if I were just to ask you, who is someone that you know that over the long haul, like 20, 30 years, like they're just a genuinely joyful, content, happy person. Like those people are so, are so rare. So we know that the happiness myth doesn't work. And what Judges is teaching us is that God's ways are the best way for the best life. God's ways are the best way. For the best life, no matter what it feels like, no matter what it looks like, no matter how green the grass is on the other side, when we fully commit our lives to God's ways, 
We're going to end up with lives with, of joy and peace and fulfillment. Could anybody in here use a little more joy, peace, and fulfillment? Let me see your hands. I could use a little bit more joy, peace, and fulfillment. We find that and get that when we fully commit to God's ways. I'm convinced, and myself, really everybody in the room, we, we vastly underestimate the power of obedience. Or maybe we can say it this way, that we, we underestimate the power of disobedience. Each and every decision that we make to either fully embrace God's ways or, or fully embrace our own at the time that we're making those small decisions, they don't seem like a big deal. They seem actually rather insignificant. But they're huge. They're huge. And it's not until we find ourselves lying on our back, knocked out, that we realize we're in trouble. For some of you, that's literal. Like you actually were on your back, knocked out when you realized you were in trouble. For others of us, it's just figurative. Like life has knocked me out and I didn't realize what was leading up and building up to this moment. But it's all of those decisions, all of that disobedience. So that's how we're going to end the series today is we're going to talk about underestimating disobedience. You know, all of us underestimate things in life, don't we? I was, I was thinking about some of the things in my life that I underestimate um, that, that just, I, just consistently I'm underestimating. Like, for example, I always underestimate the amount of time it will take me to assemble furniture. Anybody else, like, you underestimate? It's like, I could do that in 30 minutes, and that never happens. Um, I underestimate the number of calories in food. Come on, somebody. Anybody with me? I'm like, that's probably like 200 calories. That's fine. That's probably only like four ounces of meat, you know, or whatever. Um, uh, I always underestimate how long it'll take me to get somewhere, and then I blame it on the trains. Um, if, you're, if you're not in, in your 20s, you can relate to this. Andrea and I always underestimate our ability to stay awake at a 10 o'clock movie. Anybody, like, we think to ourselves, like, we can do the late movie. That's no problem. Got a babysitter. We'll stay out late tonight. It's like 10.30, we're like, we just want to go to sleep. We just want to go to bed. And those are silly and funny, but we, we underestimate big things too, right? Like, um, we all underestimate the impact that we have on our children's lives. We underestimate the power of our words. We underestimate the compound interest of saving for retirement. We underestimate the power of tithing. I think it's, I think it's safe to say that all of us in the room vastly underestimate how much God loves us. I love Romans 8, 37, 39. It says, and I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, angels or demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. I want you to know today, God loves you. He doesn't just love you, he likes you. And he is, he's crazy about you. And we could just hang out there for a while because that's good news that we cannot be separated from God's love. But, but, but I want us to, to learn from judges the, the power of disobedience, and, and hopefully we can stop underestimating it. T today I'm going to tell you a really strange story. It's, it's dark, it's twisted. I, I can almost guarantee you that your mom and dad never read this Bible story to you before you went to bed. I can almost guarantee you, you didn't learn about this in Sunday school, you didn't learn about this in Catholic school, I would be willing to bet, because nobody really knows what to do with it, because it's just this sadistic, strange, twisted story. I also want to let you know, this is going to get a little bit adult rated today, so if you don't want your kids to hear something from me you haven't talked to them about yet, I would love for you to, 
take them to one of our incredible kids' classes, just to give you a little heads up. But we're going to read about some things today that are un, like unspeakable, unthinkable. And the people in the story would agree with you. They, they would think that, that they, they never would imagine they would have been at the place that they're at. But this story is just another confirmation that, that my ways are not the best way. God's ways are. My ways are not the best ways. God's ways are. God's ways is. And if, if I will go my way and doing what I want to do, I'm going to end up at a place I never thought I would be. I, I heard preachers say it like this growing up. And if you grew up in some type of like Pentecostal charismatic church, maybe you heard them say it like this. But this is how I heard it growing up. They said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you far more than you want to spend. Everybody ever heard that before? But they would say it like with some soul. They'd say, sin will take you farther than you want to go. That's how they would say it. Andrew wants me to preach like that sometimes. I just got to get me an organ. But um, <laughs> sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you far more than you want to spend. It's pretty much exactly like Walmart. Like you just... You stay longer than you want to stay. You spend more than you want to spend. You, yeah, it's like you walk out more miserable than you thought you would. You ever see anybody walking out of Walmart smiling? Ever? No. So for some of y'all classy folk, you're at Target, but it's the same thing. It's the same thing, okay? So sin's going to take us farther than we want to go, keep us longer than we want to stay, cost us more than we want to spend. That's never been more true than Judges chapters 19, 20, and 21. The story's too long for us to read, so I'm going to kind of tell it to you today. And if you want to join up with me, we're going to pick up in Judges 19, verse 21, I believe, 22. So if you want to meet me over there, we'll jump in together. But the story starts with a man from Levi. We don't know his name. It doesn't tell us his name. It just says he's a man from Levi. And one day, uh, this man decides to go down to Bethlehem to get him a concubine, is what the Bible says. A concubine was just like a live-in girlfriend that had a lower status uh, than a wife. It, it's, as, uh, it's as like terrible as it sounds. It's as chauvinistic as it sounds. It's as barbaric as it sounds. And so the man from Levi goes down to Bethlehem. He gets a concubine, brings her back. Evidently, things aren't going well because she decides to leave him and to go back to her dad's house in Bethlehem. The, con the, the man from Levi seems to be okay with that. Who needs you anyway, concubine? And so he's fine until about three or four months later when he gets really lonely and he decides he wants her back. So he loads up a servant and he loads up a donkey and he goes down to Bethlehem to get his concubine back and to convince her uh, to come back home with her. So he goes down to her house and he meets her father and her father is, has great hospitality, invites him in. He stays there, throws a feast. They eat, they drink, they stay up late partying together. And the, the man from the Levite, he, did, he wanted to leave the next morning, but he slept in a little too late because things got a little wild the night before. So when he decides to leave the next day, the man, the, the dad of the concubine says, hey, it's too late. Don't leave now. You'll never make it. Stay and eat with me again. Drink with me again. And so day two, they do the same thing. And he wakes up too late on day three. And they do the same thing on day three. And so finally on day four, when he wakes up, he says, we have got to go. And so he loads up the concubine, the servant, the donkey, and they decide they're going to head back to his home. But because he stayed up too late the night before and he slept in a little too long, they get a late start on the day and they can't make it all the way home. So they decide to stop halfway in a place called Gibeah. 
Now, the custom back then, whenever you were traveling through a town and you didn't know anybody and you didn't have a place to stay, is you would go to the middle of the town and you would wait there and somebody in the town would see you waiting, waiting there and they would ask you to come and stay in their home. Because all of the people in these lands that they were going to were all Israelites. Well, they weren't all Israelites, but, but Israelites were in all the towns. And so you're family, you're, you're related in some way. So if I see you waiting in the middle of town, I'm going to ask you to come stay with me. I'm going to show hospitality. So the Levite, the concubine, his servant, his donkey, they're standing out in the middle of the town and no one asks them to stay with them. And so it's getting very late into the night now. And they decide they're going to just stay right there, kind of just lay down there, I guess, on the ground. And this old man is walking by and he asks them what they're doing and they fill him in on what's going on. And he says, hey, well, why don't you come stay with me? Why don't you come and, and stay with me? And so that's what we're going to pick up in Judges 19, verse 22. Here's what it says. It says, while they were enjoying themselves, they're back at the old man's house, while they were enjoying themselves, a crowd of troublemakers from the town surrounded the house. They began beating at the door and shouting to the old man, bring out the man who is staying with you so we can have sex with him. Mm -hmm. The old man stepped outside to talk to them. No, my brothers, don't do such an evil thing. This man is a guest in my house, and such a thing would be shameful. Here, take my virgin daughter and this man's concubine. I'll bring them out to you, and you can abuse them and do whatever you like. But don't do such a shameful thing to this man. But they wouldn't listen to him. So the Levite took hold of his concubine and pushed her out the door. The men of the town abused her all night, taking turns raping her until morning. Finally, at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the man returned to the house where her husband was staying. She collapsed at the door of the house and lay there until it was light. When her husband opened the door to leave, there lay his concubine with her hands on the threshold. And he said, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. So he put her body on his donkey and took her home. Now, let's just stop for a second. And take a breath before we go any farther. Because that's, that's heavy. That's, it's dark. It's twisted. It's as bad as it sounds. There's no redeeming quality. This is not one of those Bible stories where you go, yeah, but that was terrible, but here's really what God was trying. No, it was just sick and twisted and sadistic and wrong. It's just wrong. And what we just read is not something we would wish on our, our enemies. And as gruesome as it was, here's what I want you to know. It wasn't that uncommon back in this time period for men in the town to treat guests like this. That this was actually a Canaanite tradition. And when the men showed up at the house and started beating on the door and asking for them to throw the guest outside so that they could abuse him, they were not asking for some sense of gratification. They were really asking for humiliation's sake. That, that their thought, the Canaanite men thought to themselves, you know what, we're going to send a message that we don't live by anybody's laws or anybody's rules. We can do anything we want to do, however, whenever we want to do it. So if you want to come through our town, you just better know that we'll do whatever we want to do to you. It was humiliating. This tradition actually carried on into some of Greek culture and Roman culture. But these men were not like sexually desiring someone to gratify themselves. They just wanted to humiliate them. But here's what's interesting, is that these were the same Canaanite, this, this Canaanite tradition, these were the same Canaanites that were living among God's people 
400 years ago in chapter 1. Now, this was six weeks ago, and you may not have been here, but some of you have. Maybe you don't remember. But God told the Israelite people, he said, when you get to the promised land, I want you to drive all the people out. And in chapter 1, we talked about how the people weren't sure if they wanted to fully embrace God's ways or they wanted to do what seemed right to them because God's ways seemed maybe like a little overkill. And in Judges 1.29, it says the tribe of Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, so the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Now, at the time, at chapter 1, it was no big deal because there was more Israelites than Canaanites. They were in control. There was no problem. We don't have to drive the Canaanites out. Now, here we are 400 years later. And the Levite man and his concubine have the unthinkable, unspeakable done to them by the same people that were supposed to be driven out 400 years ago. And we read that first week in Numbers 33 when God uh, told Moses to tell the people in verse 51, he said, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you cross the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, drive out all the people living there. You must destroy their carved images and demolish all their pagan shrines. Take possession of the land and settle in it because I've given it to you to occupy. Verse 55, but if you fail to drive out the people who live in this land, those who remain will be like splinters in your eye and thorns in your side. They will harass you in the land where you live. God told him this was going to happen. Now, he didn't say it was going to happen exactly like this. The point I'm trying to show you today is that 400 years later, we see the power of disobedience. You couldn't have convinced anybody in chapter one. Now listen, if we don't fully obey God, if we don't do what God tells us to do, 400 years from now, somebody that we love or is in our, whatever, is going to pay the price. Couldn't convince anybody of that. Because it seemed like a small, insignificant thing that they had control over. God's ways seemed like overkill. God's ways seemed very unnecessary. So they did what they thought was the best thing to do, even though it was the opposite of what God told them to do. And we've said each week in this series, and I just want to say to you again, that God doesn't give us standards or instructions to live by because he wants to restrict us or because he wants to hold us back, or he doesn't want life to be any fun, he gives us his instructions and his ways and his standards for our good. He doesn't want us to live in a place where people do these kinds of things. That's why he said, get rid of them. But we didn't listen. They didn't listen. So now, 400 years later, society and the people's hearts have gradually moved away from God and it's compounded on top of one another, on top of one another, and the people have embraced whatever seems right to them and that would be bad enough. What we just read would be bad enough if that's how the story ended, but that's not how the story ends. So the, the Levite takes his concubine and he takes her home and she dies somewhere on the journey or she was dead when he picked her up. We don't know, but she's dead. And he gets home and he's furious and he can't believe what's just happened and, and he, he wants justice. He wants to figure out how there could be some justice. And so he sits down and he writes 12 separate letters to the 12 tribes of Israel to let them know what happened. But as he's writing the letter, he thinks to himself, nobody's going to care about a letter. Nobody's going to get fired up about a letter. And he thinks to himself, what could I do? How could I get the message out so that people will realize just how terrible this thing is that's been done to me? 
And so in Judges 19.29, it says, When he got home, he took a knife and cut his concubine's body into 12 pieces. And he sent one piece to each tribe throughout all the territory of Israel. I told you it screwed up. That's why I had you tell somebody they look like they lost some weight. Because it gets dark. It's twisted. He cuts her body up. He puts her in individual pieces in boxes. And I want you to notice the next verse in Judges 19.30. It says, Everyone who saw it said, Such a horrible crime has not been committed in all the time since Israel left Egypt. Let me just paraphrase. They open the box, they pull out the body part and the letter, and they read what happened, and they say, I never thought it would get this bad. They say to themselves, I never would have imagined that this could have happened. I mean, we've done some bad things in our lifetime, Israel, but I never imagined it would be this bad. And that's what we always think after we're laying on the mat knocked out. Never thought Buster Douglas could beat us. But now the ref's counting and we're almost done. Honestly, we don't have time to read the rest of the story. I would encourage you to go home and read 19, 20, and 21. Um, you may not want to now that you've heard what it's about, but I would encourage you to go home and, and read that. I'm just going to sum it up for you real quick. So the people are furious, and rightfully so, and so the 11 tribes unite against the other tribe that allowed the Canaanites to live there. And so they're, in essence, having a civil war. And so they go in and they destroy the tribe. They destroy them, except for 800 men who snuck away and were living out in the desert. And so the Israelites now are, they are glad that they won this battle, but then they begin to think to themselves, this is a terrible thing because now we have destroyed one of God's tribes. This is not good. What are we going to do now? We've got to make sure that the tribe continues on. And so they think to themselves, what would be a good thing to do? What's, what's the best idea we can come up with? And they said, you know what, here's what we'll do. Why don't we bring those 800 men back in from the desert and tell them that they need a wife? They know they need a wife, but they need a wife. Wife, and that we're going to give them one and give them the instruction to go over to the tribe of Benjamin and just to kidnap any of the single women that they see walking through the street. And people in the room go, that's a great idea. And so they go and get the 800 men and they bring them back from the desert and they send them over to the tribe of Benjamin and they hide in the woods until all the ladies come outside and they run and they kidnap them and they bring them back home and they force them to be married to these men. And we're thinking to ourselves, really? Really? I don't... Why would anybody do this? Why would anybody... Why would anybody let this happen? You would think that the people at the time are, 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 are hearing ideas that are coming up, that people are coming up with, and they're thinking to themselves, wait a second, guys, that's probably not a good idea. I don't know that that's the best. I don't know if that's the wisest. Have we prayed about it? Have we asked God what to do? No. Life's just spinning out of control. Culture and society's dark and twisted. And then the author ends the book. No hero, no redemption, nobody riding in on horseback to win the day, nothing. He just ends with this line in Judges 21, 25. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. That's it. Story ends. 400 years after a group of people decided God's ways were asking too much and their ways seemed better, this is what life is like. 
They thought to themselves, you know what, I can do whatever I think is right. As long as I don't hurt anybody, you know, the most important thing is my happiness. The most important thing is me making sure that I'm enjoying life and I like life. And so I'm going to do what seems right to me, not necessarily fully embrace what God says is right. I'm going to do what seems right to me. And as long as I don't hurt anybody, well, you know what, I'll be fine. That's a lie we've all heard or all believed at some point in our life. My life will be better if I get what I want. And you know what? It won't hurt anybody. It'll be okay. But it's just not true, is it? And we know it's not true because we are sitting here today with pain and hurt from people in our lives who have made decisions that they swore would make them happy but left us dealing with the damage, right? Some of you in here, your mom or dad, when you were younger, decided, you know what? The grass is greener somewhere else. If I could be with that person, I would be happier. And they swore that it wasn't about you, and they swore that you weren't the problem, and they swore that they loved you, and they swore that they weren't leaving you, but that they just would be happier over there, and you could never understand, and you're now a full-grown adult, and you still are dealing with the pain and hurt of somebody who swore that their life would be better if they got what they want, and it wouldn't hurt anybody else. It's not true, is it? Some of you in here, you're raising a family by yourself because the person that you married or committed yourself to decided that the grass was greener somewhere else. And they decided, you know what? I can go get what I want because my life will be better. And yeah, it may sting, but it's not really gonna hurt anybody that bad. It's not gonna hurt anybody that bad. And now every day you're faced with the pain or the hurt or trying to raise kids who don't understand why life works the way that it does. And you never would have thought it could be this way or they never thought it could be that way because we always underestimate the power of disobedience. Some of us in here, we learned how to manage money from our parents, and our parents' philosophy was that money's just a means to spend more to be happier. And so we just copied their behavior, and we've dug a hole so deep, and we're still not convinced that the next purchase won't make us happy. And we're convinced that if we get what we want, life will be better, and it won't really hurt anybody. But you tell me, does it hurt? It hurts bad. Maybe you, have, maybe you lost a job at a company that had to close because a boss did what seemed right to him and thought that his life would be better if he got what he wants and now the business is shut down. Maybe you are uh, trying to find a job or a place to live, but it's incredibly difficult for you to do so because in your past, there was a time in your life where you thought, you know what, I'll get what I want and do what I want and you did that, but now it's on your record. And you, didn't under, you underestimated, you didn't think that it was that big of a deal. When we decide to use our judgment as the standard for life instead of God's clear instruction and standard, inevitably at some point, please hear me, whether it's two months, two years, 20 years, or two generations later, lots of people's lives get ruined. Lots of people are miserable. And the gods that we committed ourselves to leave us empty and unsatisfied. Please hear me. Only God makes life make sense. Only God makes life make sense. And every time we embrace some other God, every time we fully invest ourselves into some other thing that we think is better than God, we will always find ourselves laying on our back, getting counted for a knockout. Maybe not right away, but you mark it down. Two years Two months, 20 years, two generations, at some point, anything other than God leaves us empty, miserable, and longing for something else. So we've spent six weeks talking about this from different angles and different stories, and you don't need me to give you three more points today. I've given you lots of points. 
I just want to leave you with this one thought. We've said it over and over again. It's not a new thought. I just want to leave you with this one thought one more time. If you haven't got it by now, I don't know that you're going to get it. I want to leave you with this thought one more time. That God's ways are the best way for the best life. God's ways are the best way for the best life. And God's ways are not meant to inhibit or restrict me. They are meant to bless me and to keep me from a life of constant temptation. It's the best way. And no matter how bad you're like thinking, you know what, God's way seems like the bad way. I really want that way. It never works. And so there are a lot, I mean, the Bible's filled with thousands of instructions and, and ways that we can live our life. But I was just thinking through a few of the big ones, a few of the big ones that we struggle to, to, to believe that God gives us his way for our good. I, I just came up with a couple, all right? Like, for example, God doesn't tell us to only have sex with the person that we're married to because he wants to keep us from experiencing the pleasures of sex. He created it. He wants us to experience that. He gives us his way for sex because he wants to bless us with an intimacy that happens when we have only been with the best person that he has for us. And he gives us his ways for sex because he wants to protect us from the constant temptation that lust and sex play on our hearts after we let them in. That's why he gives us his way for sex. God doesn't want us to take a Sabbath rest because he wants us to fall behind our competitors or, or not be productive or be lazy. He gives us his way for rest because he wants us to experience the blessing of a life rested, recharged, and not bound by the God of busyness, stress, and worry. That's why he gives us his way. God doesn't want us to forgive the people who have hurt us because he wants us to be taken advantage of or take hurt lightly. He gives us his way for forgiveness because he wants us to experience the blessing of life not bound by bitterness and unforgiveness. God doesn't want us to tithe and give generously because he doesn't want us to have anything nice or enjoy nice things or he doesn't you know, go to the lake on the weekend. He, he doesn't care about that stuff. He gives us his way for money because he wants us to experience the blessing of a life dependent on and provided by his riches. He doesn't want us to live addicted and bound to the constant need for more. He wants to protect us from the God of greed that always leaves us empty. Let me give you one more. God doesn't want you to faithfully, consistently connect to a church family because he wants to keep you from, you know, enjoying Sunday having a lazy day. He gives us his way for the church because he wants us to experience the blessing of a life joined together with a body of believers and keep us from the God of selfishness and independence that promises us we're better off on our own but leaves us lonely, empty, and lost. He gives us his ways for our good. And our ways don't work. Please hear that. I want to end today by reading you the lyrics to a song. One of my favorite artists is a guy named Ben Rector. If you don't listen to Ben Rector, you need to listen to him because he's incredible. And uh, he just had a new album come out called Brand New. And the last track on the new album is a title, is a track titled More Like Love. And I was actually listening on the way home last night. I hadn't really heard the song. And uh, late last night driving home, I was listening to the song and I'm like, hello, that's what I'm talking about tomorrow. 
So this is what he said in his song, More Like Love. He said, I used to think I wanted to be famous. I'd be recognized out in a crowd. But the funny thing is, anytime I've gotten what I want, it lets me down. I find the farther that I climb, there's always another line of mountaintops. It's never going to stop. And the more of anything I do, the thing that always ends up true is getting what I want will never be enough. But now I just want to look more like love. I just want to look more like love. This whole world is spinning crazy and I can't quite keep up. It's the one thing around here that we don't have quite enough of. So I just want to look a little more like love. Let's pray.